you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. And we'll be reading the entirety of chapter 6 of Jeremiah this morning. Jeremiah chapter 6 will be our text for today, and I'll be reading it as is my custom out of the New King James Version. I invite you to follow along as I read Jeremiah chapter 6, all 30 verses. O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem below the trumpet in Tekoah, and set up a signal fire in Beth Hasarem, for disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, For thus has the Lord of hosts said, excuse me, cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her before me continually are grief and wounds. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine, the remnant of Israel, as a grape gatherer, put your hand back into the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning? They may hear. Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is an reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside, on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days, and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed a domination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. And at the time I punished them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is. And walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you, saying, Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations, and know, congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friends shall perish. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people comes from the north country, a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses as men of war, set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field, nor walk by the way, because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation for the plunder will suddenly come upon us. I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people, that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanders. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain. For the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. The last, the next to last song we sang, um, and if you don't remember which one that is, it was 108. Does that help you? The love of God. The second verse talks about when earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call. A description of a time of end. And really that is a description that we find uh, repeated again and again throughout the book of Jeremiah of the situation in Judah um, that is before us. And so we find that um, this is the scene of the end, if you will, uh, the extent of God's patience. In the midst of that, we may think, well, no, God can't do that. Remember, we have a loving God, and uh, there's no end to his patience. Uh, But we find that that is not true, for we also have a holy God who cannot continually have sin before him. So we come to chapter 6, and we have really kind of a, a culmination, really, of the introductory parts of Jeremiah. Uh, and we're going to see many of the themes that we have studied in the first five chapters borne out here in this uh, somewhat of a summary chapter of the introduction. And so we're going to be looking at several of them, but in the midst of that, we're going to look at the goodness of God and his repeated overtures. And that's really the word we have to use because it is the work of a God who loves his people um, and, but cannot tolerate their sin. And so these are overtures to them. Invitations. Please come, please come, please come. Uh, and do this. And yet we find the deafness of men who refuse to pray to God, refuse to turn. So before we get into our study here of this, really the summary of the introduction to Jeremiah's ministry, uh, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our great Scott, Holy Father, we thank you for your word before us, and we are challenged by it, as always. And so we need and, and request your Spirit's work in our midst this hour. You might guide um, what is said and what is received, that we might do, as we look in your word, we might do so with open hearts, 
minds that are sharp, uh, ready to discern your truth, and hearts uh, prepared to accept it and to demonstrate that acceptance by our obedience to it. And Lord, we thank you for the truths that it reveals about you and your working amongst us. And we pray that you might guard our hearts from being hardened as we see among the recipients of your grace and mercy in this chapter. So Lord, we give ourselves over to this study and pray that you might work in us your purposes to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, um, we are going to find that uh, at the beginning of the chapter, as well as at the end of the chapter, we're going to be reminded of where the threat is coming from. It is coming from the north. We have seen that throughout the introductory parts. Um, We saw it a lot last week when we talked about um, God working among the nations. And really, chapter 6 has more uh, conversation with them than he really has with Israel. And much of what we learn about Judah, technically Judah, what we really learn about Judah, we are learning by listening in on God, talking to the nations about his people. Um, His people, he's going to talk and describe them. So really chapter 6 is a summary. It's almost God turning uh, from talking to Israel, although there are several passages that are clearly focused on there, but they are brief and very direct. Um, He's going to turn from talking uh, to his people, really talking to those that are going to watch what he does to his people. And this is going to be uh, very important. And it goes back to a conversation uh, that he had with Moses when God, if you remember, wanted to destroy Israel, start all over. He said, I'm fed up with this rebellious people. I'm just going to destroy them all, start all over with you. And Moses says, now what are all the nations going to say if you do this? You'd get them out of Egypt, you'd get them out of the wilderness, then you just kill them all? You know, what kind of, what are the nations going to think of that, of that kind of a God? And God relents, which is another whole study in and of itself, um, and listens to the argument of Moses uh, as a valid one. But here, I, I think this addresses that issue, that God is going to talk to the nations and say, I want you to understand why I'm doing this to these people who are still called by my name, who I still love, but I want you to understand um, what's happening here that is not that uh, uh, I have forsaken them, but rather that they have forsaken me. Uh, and this is very important, um, not only for the sake of the testimony of God among the nations, but also because of what God is going to require of them. Remember that as God uses nation, whether it be the Assyrians Um, the Babylonians, um, even later on, the Greeks and the Romans, as he allows nations to come, the Medes and Persians, I skipped there, sorry, Uh, as he allows these nations to come in and to rule his land, if you will, his people, um, over and over again, we find that the reason he identified certain people groups to perform that act, even going back to Egypt, um, as we see in their history, a willingness to turn to God. And God responds by raising them up. They then come in, are the force that judges Israel. But then comes the trouble. Instead of bringing glory to God, for his raising them up and using them as an instrument against his people to judge them, they take glory to themselves. And there comes their demise. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be an obvious uh, opposite example 
Um, but pretty quickly after his leaving the scene, um, that's what happens with Belteshazzar. And so we have God destroying him, boom, like that, very quickly. And so as nation after nation does not uh, give uh, honor to God as they go into the land of, of Israel and Judah, um, God then is going to judge them. That they are not doing this, and we saw it already in the Syrians, and uh, God punished them for cursing his name uh, there at the walls of Jerusalem and just decimates them. Um, because he's the one that raises them up. He's the one that allowed them to take the northern tribes into captivity. He was the one. Instead of giving glory to him, they cursed him, and God destroyed them. And so a chapter like this is very important in this idea of justice among the nations in God's working. That he does give them fair warning, uh, both to defend his own testimony and also to warn them about not giving him the glory when they are used by him to judge his people. And so we have, again, uh, an initiation, a beginning of a warning to the northern parts of Judah, uh, hence the identification of of Benjamin. uh, And we're going to find the trumpet being an important facet, too, of this chapter. Blow the trumpet, send a signal fire, um, that a disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. The, and again, the statement here is that there's an impendingness, there is a suspense, and uh, it's going to be coming out of the north, and so take your northern sectors, um, which typically would have belonged, uh, the northern sectors of Judah, not of Israel, those would take you all the way up to Dan, Hebron, uh, to the, uh, uh, the northern mountains, but rather he's looking really at uh, even south of the Megiddo Valley. He's talking about those mountains of Ephraim and Benjamin um, out of which Saul came and, and, and along that Jordan and, and Galilee. And, and he says, here's where the north army is going to come from. And so you better have that region ready to sound off the trumpet to give the, the, the longest warning possible. Here, Remember, a lot of this was territory was already taken. And so here's the northernmost point of Judah's influence and nation. He says, let's give this the Jerusalem the best warning possible that out of the north is coming this threat against you. And uh, he then has a picture of her, of, of Judah, as uh, one that uh, people will relentlessly go after. In verse 2, it's likened like a daughter of Zion, a delicate woman, lovely woman, that, that's a desire. And so he describes the shepherds and then the war and the fact that they will be relentless in their pursuit of her. And we might think of this in a, in a courtship setting or something like that, but of course it's obviously on the negative side. And so here's a a gal that is relentlessly being pursued by an admirer, um, but not one that she wants to pursue her. But he is relentless nonetheless. And so it talks about the shepherds, that they're going to bring their flocks there. They're going to pitch their tents around here. They're going to pasture there. They're going to stay there. They're not going away. And then the the symbol or the picture of war, that they're going to uh, go up at noon. And if they can't get to it, if the day is getting away, they're going to go up in the evening. If they can't accomplish it by then, they're going to go up during the night. They're going to be relentless in their 
uh, coming after Jerusalem. And in fact, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar does not sack Jerusalem just once, but three times he's going to sack her. Coming up against her again and again and again, this relentlessness, because Israel just, you know, Judah would not respond. Even after falling the first time, he still found them to be rebellious. And Nebuchadnezzar has to send his forces back in there. And then a third time even to destroy the temple itself and to take everything captive out of there, avoiding value. And so they're going to go up and, and have a relentless pursuit of all that Jerusalem represents as a people of God. And now in verse 6 is when we transition from this description of and this warning to Judah and this description of her and the and the manner of describing the relentlessness of this northern army to come after which we're going to see risen again at the end of the chapter we now have God uh, really turning his attention more so to those who are going to be doing the attacking in fact giving them instructions of how to do it it says, for thus says the Lord, cut down trees, build a mound against Jerusalem. Um, I want this city punished. Why? He's giving these instructions to her enemies. We don't often think of God working in the hearts and lives of our enemies to give them insight of how to exercise his will against his own people. Um, but here we find God, through the prophet Jeremiah, uh, having a message, and this is going to be uh, occasionally risen up in Jeremiah. We're going to see this happen where Jeremiah's talking to the nations as much as he's talking to Judah, even in captivity. And so he begins to describe her, and in the end of verse 6, says, this is a city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. Um, she is, and when we think, see the word oppression, you need to look again at what we saw towards the end of chapter 5 of her mistreatment of the poor, of the fatherless, the social injustice that was going on inside of the city walls that God disdains. This oppression. Verse 7, he carries it further. And that as a fountain wells up with water. She wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her before me continually are grief and wounds. And so you have this, this comparison that you have relentless wickedness coming out of Judah, out of Jerusalem, the city. And so we're going to have a relentless enemy raised up to come against her walls. Because there's just no end to the wickedness that God is seeing. And he uses this word continually before me, our grief and wounds. He, he hears the cries of those who are being abused and oppressed. He sees the victims of the violence and the plundering. He hears them continually, those groans, that grieving and wounding. This is not the grieving of repentance. This is not the grieving that he's going to call for later on of putting on uh, sackcloth and going into ashes and, and being sorry. That's not what he's hearing. What he's hearing is the grieving of victims 
of the oppression that's going on in the land of Judah. That here the poor are being disdained and, and maltreated, and in fact the wealthy are getting wealthier off of the poor. And um, this week was uh, uh, just more evidence of that. Um, our, na- our state was able to bring in millions of dollars extra into the lottery fund for college students this week. And they were all so relieved to have rebuilt up the scholarship funds for the state. And we all know that that primarily that is essentially a voluntary tax upon those that can least afford it. God hears that cry of anguish that comes from those that are being oppressed and abused, victimized, really, by those who would enrich themselves at the loss of others who can least afford that loss. In the paper this week, they listed that those with Incomes below, I believe it was 12000 a year, spend 9% of their income on the lottery. On average. 9% of their income they spend gambling, trying to get out of the hole they're in financially. We're going to see a little bit of why when we get to chapter 7, but... Um, This is the kind of thing God hears. And it says that grieving, that that anguish, um, that uh, disease, he hears. And he sees the victims of that. and, And he sees the oppressors and he sees what the result socially is for his people. And he's going to respond. He's telling the nations this. Listen, this is what's going on in this city and in this land. And this is why I want you to come against Jerusalem. They need to be punished. And I want you to understand why I'm punishing them. And it's going to be an important part of their relationship with God as the instruments that he uses. And again, in verse 8, very briefly, be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. I'm talking to your enemies, but you should be listening. If you won't listen to me talk directly to you, perhaps you will listen in on my conversation to your enemies of what they should do against you because of what I've seen within you. And this is the real force of this chapter, is almost the idea that if if you won't listen to me speak directly at you, face to face, maybe... By curiosity, you will listen in on a conversation to your enemies of what I have to say to them about you. And truth be told, most of us are much more interested in listening that way, aren't we? Just human nature to listen to others talk about us than the people that are talking to us. Or to have a a conversation we can just sit in and uh, be a third party to. So God says, be instructed, listen up. It is about to happen. The desolation is coming. 
Now we have a description of how they're going to proceed. His invitation is that they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel. And at the end of verse 9, very direct command, as a grape gatherer, put your hand back into the branches. We're not just talking about getting a general harvest, all the stuff that's ripe and, and ready to pick and easy to get at. That's not, God is not doing this superficial judgment of, of cherry picking, if you will, grape picking in this case, of, of just a superficial judgment that's going to be a little belt tightening is going to be required and we're going to suffer a little bit. No, he's going to tell your enemies, go back and get every little bit that's left. Now remember, Israel was commanded uh, in the law to leave, to not ever harvest your fields all the way to the edges and all the way into the corners. You're supposed to leave those. Um, You're also not to go back and re-harvest a field. Anything that your harvesters leave behind or to be left behind. And so if they drop something or something, uh, a stalk or an area gets missed, you just leave that. And the idea is that that is where uh, the poor would go and they would glean that. And the expectation is that if you did not have the wherewithal to make a living, that you would go into the fields, you would do that work, and you would go in and glean that. We find an excellent example of that in the in the story of Ruth, where Ruth is out there gleaning, and Boaz uh, not only just lets her glean, but even tells his guys, why don't you just leave a whole bunch there? <laughs> just kind of ignore that row and let her glean it. And she comes back with huge amounts of, of grain from his fields. And, uh, of course, uh, mother-in-law knows immediately what's going on. Uh, they have a way of knowing that. Um, and so now God comes to the nation and says, I don't want you just to harvest Israel. I want you to glean her. I want you to pick her clean. Every little bit of her. There's nothing redeemable in this town. There's nothing redeemable in this land. So I want you to go in, and when you think you're done, you're going to put your hand back into there, reach way deep into the vines that are there, and find what's in there, and even take that out. And I'm starting to learn a little bit. I, I, I grew some great, some blackberries, and fortunately... Because men are so smart, we have been able to figure out how to make them thornless. So now I can dig into there on the second and third times. And I'm picking blackberries all this year. And then several times I went and you pick up and you reach way in there and you stick your head in the vines. And you go, whoa, where did all these come from? You find a whole other area. And God says, I'm not going to leave even those secret caches for you. Nothing. I'm taking it all out. Nothing's going to be hidden from your enemy. They're going to come in and they're going to extract it. And when you think that they're gone and you still got some secret stash, they're going to be back and they're going to take that from you. And that's exactly what Babylon's going to do. God wants them to be thoroughly, completely desolate. And so his invitation is, come back, come back. You're not done gathering the grapes of my wrath. You're going to put your hand back into the branches. You're going to glean them so that even the remnant of Israel will not remain in the land. And, of course, we recognize this, that the remnant, we know that God is not going to let them completely destroy Israel or Judah, that there's going to be a remnant, but he doesn't even want the remnant left in the land. 
He wants the remnant, the survivors, taken out of the land, and they're going to be taken into captivity up into Babylon, and they are going to be there for 70 years, 69. And um, he's going to, he has a plan for them, but here's the choices, the remnant, the, the survivors, the ones that are going to bend the knee to God, the one that he is going to allow go into captivity instead of being destroyed. He says, I don't even want them left in the land. Nothing. Glean the remnant out. Pull them out. Take them away into Babylon. And we're going to find those men, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to find all of those remnant followers of the God of Israel in the land of Babylon doing his work. And now again, God is going to give further description. And he does, you find over and over again that he is going to refer, I don't think he's talking to Jeremiah anymore, but to the nations. To, and he's using the third person plural to describe Judah, which tells us he's not talking to Judah. He's talking about Judah. And so look at what he says here in verse 10 and following. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of fury, of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside, and the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with a wife. The aged with him who is full of days, their houses shall be turned over to others. Fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone has given to covetousness. And I'm going to stop right there. And so again, the third person, this is what's going on there. We have seen this kind of discussion with Jeremiah. Some would contend that God is going back and talking to Jeremiah again um, to re- reinforce that the necessity of his ministry. Um, but I really think that this is more focused on the nations given the, the context of the rest of the chapter. And so he says, look at them. Look at these people. And he's asked Jeremiah before, where else among the Gentiles have you seen people go abandon their God like my people have abandoned me? It's unheard of. And so God communicates, I am convinced, the disaster that is going on there in terms of their wickedness that they don't want to hear anything he has to tell them. That the word of the Lord is an offense to them. That as soon as you start quoting quoting scripture, they roll their eyes, they, uh, they don't want to hear it, let alone respond to it. They have reached a point in their social life that the word of God has no place. Sound familiar? As a nation, the word of God had no place. We don't want to hear it. We don't want it in front of our eyes. We don't want to see it. Um, it is a reproach. It is an offense to us. And this is what it has become in our land. It's an offense to us. And we have all these groups trying to extract it from our social psyche, from our social environment 
that God's word has no place in it. Um, and it's fascinating that it's only God's word that has no place. You ever notice that? I mean, the Quran right now has a place in our public schools, but the Bible doesn't. Because it's a reproach. We're offended by it. As a nation, as a people, and in fact, in, in many senses, in as many churches, it's become a reproach. They just don't want to hear it. They want to hear what's going to be spoken later on in this chapter. They want to hear that, those kinds of words. They don't want to hear the word of the Lord. They don't want to see it. They don't want to be confronted by it at all. And we go back historically in our nation, and we can see the extensive use of God's word in the public forum. Um, I would really challenge you to go back and read some of Abraham Lincoln's other speeches. We all know Gettysburg Address. Read some of his other ones. Try even putting those on the wall of a public school. And you won't be allowed to put them up. You know why? Because of the extensiveness in which he quotes Scripture in his speeches. This is our president. Even our justices were quoting Scripture historically. Now sometimes it was not very well quoted. Um, in fact, after 9-11, there was some scripture quoted in Congress. Boy, horrible scripture. <laughs> um, but there's a, a general reproach, there's a general offense that you even confront them with any Bible verses. Oh, pfft. That we don't have toward any other book. No other book is treated that way. No other quotes received in such a negative manner. So they don't want to give heed because they can't give heed because they, they can't obey the word because they don't even want to have the word in front of them. And this is the condition that Judah had gotten into that that you know that they had lost the law, they had lost the the, the books they, they had no clue that it was all passed down and, and they had totally extracted it from their national experience. We also find something else that's very telling about our God and that is he holds back his wrath for a really long time. And when God says, I am tired of holding it back, you know it's been a while. He says, I've held it back. I've given them chance after chance. He's going to tell the nations how many chances he's given them. And he says, and they don't listen. Um, they don't listen at all. And so, I want you to come in. You're going to take the husband and the wife. You're going to deal with the old, the young. You're going to take their houses, their fields, and their wives. Why such a thorough plunder? Well, we found that they just can't keep bringing forth oppression, violence, and plundering of their own, of the weak. And so I'm going to continually bring forth this kind of harvesting, if you will, of them, and a thorough cleansing 
of every evidence of Judah in the land. And this is how to break covetousness. Um, Breaking covetousness isn't really accomplished by taking away half. Um, Breaking covetousness requires a loss of all. And that's why when we sing songs all to Jesus, I've surrendered and take my silver and take my gold, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. We sing those kinds of songs and in our hymnody, hymnody, we have those given to us by people who have recognized that really to break covetousness in my life, I have to surrender everything to God. That if I hold back some and call it mine, that it still brings forth covetousness in my life. That I really have to give it up and say, this is God's, this is God's, this is God's, this is God's. I'm just a steward, a manager who must be measured one day. And so of all the sins, and certainly their social sins are driven, what drives social sin? What drives that kind of abuse of the poor and the weak and the fatherless, the widows? What drives that abusiveness socially is covetousness, that we want it for ourselves. That we believe we deserve more comforts, more plenty, bigger, more bigger and more, and we don't even give a second thought to the backs of those that we are building all of that off of. We are truly, as Habakkuk described, the nation that just consumes the world's labor and materials and keep wanting more. We are the consumers. We are the covetousness. We want stuff when we don't even know what it is. Just because we have to have it. Because it's a good deal. (laughs) Not that we'll ever use it, but we have to have it. It says, from the greatest to the least, everyone is given a covetousness. And this is the driving force behind social injustice. And as many times we can talk about those who have attained to the American dream, we can equally talk about those who have been destroyed by others attaining to it. And that's reality. Well, the second half of verse 13 then takes us to another familiar group of people. Prophet and priest are dealing falsely. Remember, these are the hope. And we're going to see this again and again come up in Jeremiah because Jeremiah is dealing with his family. And the falsehood that he sees among them, he says, they, in verse 14, have healed the hurt of my people slightly, which is a difficult translation of the Hebrew here. Um, They have really just um, poured... um, uh, put a, if we were to use something, we, he, they put a Band-Aid on a wound that required stitches and major surgery. They put a little Band-Aid on it. It was just 
completely um, inadequate and superficial, and in fact, it did more injury than it did good. Well, what is it that they did to the people of the land? They told them, be at peace, be at peace, be at peace. Relax, be at peace. Um, We'll figure this out. God loves us. Be at peace when there was nothing but the wrath of God being stored up for them. So here's God over here just, you know, you can just hear the steam when we pressure cook our food. You hear the little thing just waiting. And if you take that thing off, don't take the lid off while the thing's still going. So here's God over here. You can just know the pressure is built that his, his wrath is just, he, how much longer will he hold it in? And there it is. And then here's over the people over here is, don't worry, that doesn't mean anything. That's not a threat at all. You're at peace. So, so God is just barely containing his wrath. And over here are the priests and the false prophets who are saying, oh, it's be at peace, be at peace. He says, there's no peace. I'm not, God's not at peace. He's not settled with, with you. He's not, he's not relaxed about what's going on. He, the pressure is building and building and it will certainly one day simply burst forth and this is what is coming. And so in this environment socially where you have the people, greatest to least, given to covetousness, got to get stuff, and you have the men of God so-called, that are telling you, it, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, and giving you perfectly good reason to persist in your continued behavior um, in whatever fashion. Um, in the midst of that, then, we have this result. No one is ashamed of any of the evil they do. To the point that God says, no one in this land even blushes anymore. They do the most perverse, wicked things, and they don't, they're not ashamed of it. They, won't, they, they don't even blush at the idea of it. They laugh at heinous things, wicked things. They glory in it. In fact, just as he talked earlier on that they can't obey God's word because they don't want to see or hear God's word. And so we can look at that statement, they cannot heed it, and some of our Calvinists uh, around want to tell us, well, that means they can't because they're dead and God has to save them before he can save them. Um, No, the statement they can't heed is conditioned upon the fact that they don't want to hear. And again, Romans 10 tells us, how can they believe if they have not heard? So God here says they can't take heed and obey me because they don't even let my word in their presence. So they can't obey what they've never heard. Not that I've never told it to them, but they have stopped up their ears by not allowing my word in the public forum. Well, so it is here. 
we have another one of those declarations that they, that, uh, they, uh, they don't know how to blush. Why don't they know how to blush? Um, did God rescind his work of, of convicting them? No, the prophet is being sent to them. They're being confronted with their sin all over the place. The prophet after prophet after prophet is sent, but they don't know how to blush. Why? Because they've been desensitized and people hear the, the preachers and the, uh, the priests that are telling them, peace, peace, and it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how vile what your act is, they won't condemn it. They won't condemn it privately, they won't condemn it publicly. Oh, we just want peace, want peace, want peace. And you end up with a society that has no corporate or as a body do not have a conscience. Romans tells us their conscience is seared with a hot iron. You end up with a city like Sodom, a city like Gomorrah. And therefore, they shall fall. I'm going to punish them. They will be cast down. And so the Lord wants to communicate to the nations. I'm going to, and he, and he actually voices this to the nations a little bit in verse 18. Therefore, hear uh, you nations and know, congregation, what is among them. Um, he's telling them that you're going to build this up against the walls of Jerusalem. You're going to do all of this. Um, and here's the reasons why. But I want you, the nations, to understand that it's not you doing this. It's me doing this through you. Here's the reason why. You're the instrument, and you're going to have to go over and over and over again and attack them. You're going to have to take them, completely desolate them, um, and carry any remnants off into captivity. Um, Here is the condition of the people in terms of their social injustice, their greed, their covetousness, um, their false religiousness, and the fact that they have no conscience anymore at all. In the midst of his statement to the nations, God interjects a little bit more for Israel to stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. This is what God said to them. Here's what God offers to us, invites us to. Um, and even in the, those two phrases that sounds like they are of an incapacity to come to God, um, that isn't, it is an incapacity generated by their own decision not to hear the truth, not to be exposed to the truth of the word, because if you don't have access to God's truth, you will not come to salvation. And so God says, I'm putting the offer out there again. Here it is. Here's what I've told them over and over again. Here's, here's my very words to them. Go back to the old past. Ask for them. Just ask. Sound like Jesus' statement? Ask. Knock. Seek. He says, just ask for the old paths. Ask, how do we get back? How do we get to the good? How do we, how do we reform this place? Just ask, he says. Ask for that old path. Find that good way where all the 
All the blessings of God were there. Seek it out. Stand and look for it. And then walk in it once you have been shown it. We are called back to the old paths. And what a wonderful picture that God has for us as we look at an opportunity to backtrack out of the mess we have created and go back to getting the God's word in the forefront of our thinking, in front of our eyes, in our mind, echoing in our ears that we might have access to the good ways. And this is the purpose of Jeremiah. The purpose isn't to make us walk out of here guilt-ridden. You walked in here guilt-ridden, right? The world is guilt-ridden, even when they don't know it. They should be. But we confront them with sin and the, and the wrath of God uh, with this invitation as our goal is you can take a step back and get things fixed. Just ask. Ask where the old paths are. How, how, where, where, how did our forefathers get here in the land? How did they get blessed so much? Well, you can go back and find those old paths. I'll reveal them to you. And in fact, he does. And Josiah starts rebuilding the temple. And what happens? While they're remodeling the temple, that's when they find God's word. And they drag it out and start reading it. Oh, imagine. God, you did a little bit right, and God provided all the rest you needed. There's a good way. And God desires us to be in it. And this is his faithful love for us. He offers us rest for our souls. And when we look around and we see where the Christian community has gone to, we look at our society and we see its pains and its anguishes, and we see, and and boy, we have it here. If you haven't read today's newspaper, you might want to, um, where New Mexico ranks on everything. It's like, why didn't I go to Texas or Arizona or Colorado? We are surrounded by the best, and we are the worst. I don't know how that happens. Well, I do. But um, I was telling my wife this morning, I said, why didn't we go to Texas 20 years ago? You're looking for it. No. Because you got to go where the sinners are. <laughs> That's how we came to Mexico. Um, how do we get it right? Well, we ask. We seek the old ways. And God reveals them. God gets us back to his word. And then when we obey his word, then the good way, the good things are there. God isn't withholding good because he's mean natured he's not withholding good because he's stingy he only withholds good because we won't walk in the good way he he withholds rest for your soul and gives you anxiety and and discomfort and and misery um, and even guilt because you are on the wrong path and we don't, he doesn't, not going to reinforce you on that path. That would be a horrible thing. I would never reinforce my children if they're on a wrong path, would I? Some parents do. What are you thinking? You don't buy your kids drugs. Well, it's better to get it from me than from, really? 
You don't reinforce vice among your children. And God won't reinforce vice in your life. He will stand off, withhold his blessing, and wait for you to come. But it gets worse than that. Having said that to them, he invited them, stand in the way, see, watch, ask, see what happens when you walk in the old paths and what good there is there, you'll find rest, all this nice stuff. And here's what they responded. We will not walk there. We will not walk in it. Not a chance. We don't want to walk in that way. Just flat out rebellion. Then God adds to his goodness. Verse 17. I'll set watchmen over you. And they'll blow trumpets. And the watchmen he's referring to are not the, you know, the walls would have guards that would have trumpets and they would be watching as soon as they saw, as soon as they saw a threat of any form, they were to blow the trumpets. And that roused everybody. They all come up onto the wall and um, they can prepare to defend themselves. And so that's the imagery he's using here. And he's referring to his prophets. You know, I sent prophet after prophet in my goodness. I sent them to you to blow the trumpet. I mean, they they sounded the horn, saying, we're in deep trouble. Listen to the sound of the trumpet. I've sent them, they've heard it, and instead you covered your ears and said, we will not listen. And don't miss what happens next. You won't listen. That's what you said. We won't listen. We don't want to see your word. We don't want to hear it. We won't respond to it. We don't want the old ways. We don't want your grace. We don't want your goodness. We don't want your mercy. We don't want your love. We don't want any of this from you. When God is screaming and yelling and shouting for them to come back, please, 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 They said, we will not listen. And it's no mistaking that in verse 18, since his people wouldn't listen, who will listen? He says, therefore, hear you nations. And no congregation, what is among them? Hear, O earth. I'm going to bring calamity on this people. You wouldn't listen to my loving, gracious, merciful call to the right path, to the, to the good ways, to the place of rest, to the place of deliverance, to the place of blessing. And so because you stopped your ears, now I am turning my voice to the nations and to the rest of the earth and explaining to them why I'm going to bring all of this judgment on you. I want them to know why this is happening, that it's not my fault, it's your fault. And so I'm showing the whole world. I'm going to show the nations. I'm going to show the earth that you wouldn't listen. And let me tell you, they will listen. It's no mistake. When we get down to verse 22, a people come from the north country. A gate nation will raise from the farthest place of the earth. And here they come. Boom, 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 boom. And fear grips everyone because no one stops this nation because it is supernatural in its capacity to destroy Israel. It is doing the work of God as his agent 
because God's people wouldn't listen. Because the nation wouldn't listen. They stopped up their ears. They didn't want to see God's word up here, that they didn't listen. They couldn't give heed because they didn't let it in the venue that any of them would see it or hear it. They deliberately, point blank, said, we'll not walk in your worry and we'll not listen to your word. God's grace and goodness is despised, rejected, and so God says, fine. I'm going to start talking to the nations. I'm going to start talking to your enemies. I'm going to raise them up. And here God lays out his argument in front of the nations to show them through his prophet, why um, they are given permission by the sovereign God to come into Israel and do what they're going to do to Judah. Why do you get to do this, Babylon? Well, here is the demonstration. Here is God explaining it to them. This is not because I've forsaken them. This is not because I am a a vicious, mean, nasty God. This is not because uh, uh, I am cruel or um, just stingy. Rather, it is because they don't want to do justice. They don't want to hear reproof. They don't want to go in the ways of blessing. They want to go this other way. And so, um, it, it really concludes, and, and I haven't been able to get into a lot of these, some of these other verses about how worthless their empty acts of worship are. We studied a lot of that. Verse 28, they are all stubborn rebels, walking in slanders. They're bronze and iron, corruptors. And so you're the bellows. <laughs> You're going to melt them down. But even when you melt them down, and the purpose of melting them down is so that the, the contaminants come to the top and get skimmed off. He says, even after I use you to melt them down, they won't skim off the contaminants. That's why you have to come in and just totally annihilate the land. Because the first time in Babylon won't be sufficient. They're too stubborn and rebellious. You melt them down, they don't pull off the dross and clean up their act, and so you're going to come in and destroy them. And they're going to be rejected silver. That is, that even in a, that you can't purify it. You can't get the 99.99% purity out of them. So just, just, just bury it, just... Get rid of it. It's garbage. You can't purify this stuff. You keep melting it down and melting it down. The dross won't be taken off. As soon as it cools a little bit, there it is again. So these people are rejected people. And So do your worst against them, but don't come in and say what the Assyrians said about me. Don't sit there and say that I'm weak and powerless. Don't come in there and curse me like the Assyrians did. They got destroyed for it. But rather, and and to a large degree, Babylon listened (laughs) to this chapter. They came in, they did it, and they almost, um, almost 
helped Jerusalem and, and it's like, okay, well, we won't destroy you completely. And they took some of the best and they didn't decimate their temple and let them keep worshiping. And uh, the rebellion came. And then they, they came back in. And you don't find the attitude among the Babylonians like you had among the Assyrians. And then, of course, later on, you have Nebuchadnezzar coming to a, a following of the God of Israel in his own right. And we find that they heard, even though Israel wasn't willing to listen, the nations were, at least one nation. And recognize this is a stubborn people. This is a stubborn people. When you get into the book of Nehemiah and Ezra and you find the struggles of trying to rebuild the temple and the tabernacle, uh, one of the things that is sent back to the Persians is, you don't know how rebellious these people are. And you just wonder if this is one of the passages of their own writers that they sent back to say, these are really rebellious people. You should be real careful how much liberty you give them in the land. Because the nations hear this. They see the rebelliousness. They see the, the hardness, the stubbornness of these. God calls them bronze and iron corruptors. And so God's going to put stumbling blocks in front of them, that they are going to be dense in their understanding of what's going on. And his expectation of the nations is, I want you to go in and clean them out. And this is not, again, God's wickedness. This is his love. Because he has patiently invited them to the old paths, offered them a good way and rest sent them watchmen to look out for their souls, and they didn't want any part of it. And so this is all that was left for him to do. And so we are reminded of a good and loving God that has a limit on his patience, a limit on what he will endure among his people before he comes and says, Enough, And we will find those same limits at the end times as well when God in the face of all the earth behaving as Judah in this day, God will say enough. And we are nearing that day. And so we are called to be the Jeremiah's to go out there and, and if the people of God won't hear, um, it is likely the nations will do God's work in these days bring his final judgment on this land, this earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. And we do pray that you might find us on an individual level as those in this land who heard and were carried off as the remnant into Babylon. Lord, that as a body that we might stand and want to declare your truth, that your word might always have the preeminence for us in our time together, in our private life, in our family life, in our church life, that we might ever not ever get to the place where your scriptures are reproach we have a distaste for them or even don't want to hear them. And then, Lord, that we might always have a heart willing to do, to listen, to obey, 
Lord, guard us from this, even as we seek to guard ourselves from this condition that we see in Israel. Lord, we thank you so much for your love, for your mercy and grace toward us. And Lord, we pray that we might find the old paths that led to goodness, that led to rest, and obediently walk in them. Lord, keep us in them. We thank you for this reminder that your ways are not hidden. Your truth is not mysterious in terms of unknowable. You have shown yourself. You have clearly told us what we must do. Lord, for this we thank you and pray that we might, by faith, walk in that old way. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.